It's so good to be able to come with you uh, to the Word of God again today as we continue our studies in the book of Revelation. And we're continuing today really with part two um, of the scene that we began a few weeks ago uh, in the throne room of heaven uh, in chapter four. And um, so please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter five. Revelation chapter 5, this is the portion of Scripture that we're going to, to read together. Um, and as you are turning there, let me just remind you, if you want to glance back over chapter 4, um, that John was taken up by the Spirit uh, into heaven. And uh, you will hopefully, hopefully recall that last time we saw that the central object uh, of John's vision in chapter 4 was the throne of God. Uh, and then the central action or the attitude uh, in chapter 4 was the worship of God who sits on the throne. Uh, we saw last time that the glory of God radiated from the throne. It was described in bright, colorful language of, of precious jewels. Uh, we saw something as well last time of both the, the judgment of God in the, the lightning and the thunder which proceeded from the throne, uh, as well as the covenant grace of God uh, in the symbol of the rainbow which surrounded the throne. And hopefully you'll recall as well last time that heaven was not empty, uh, that it was filled with angelic creatures. There were 24 elders seated on 24 thrones around the throne of God. There were these four living creatures covered in eyes all over, each having six wings. Uh, and we saw that these elders and these creatures were in a, a constant state of worshiping God crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things and by your will they existed. And so the focus last time was on the God of the throne. He is the sovereign creator. He's made all things. He rules in, in holiness and justice over all that he has made, and he is worthy of all our worship. Now, with that in mind, let's pick up in chapter 5 and continue to see what, what John describes for us in this vision. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. 
And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked. And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. What an amazing portion of God's word. Let's just come again briefly and commit this time to God in prayer. Father, we want to just uh, marvel again at your majesty and your glory and your goodness and your grace to us as we come to a portion of Scripture like this, a portion which just centers our hearts and our minds on the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has accomplished for us as your people. And so, Lord, won't you prepare our hearts and stir us now, give us attentive minds as we come to this portion of Scripture, that you may be glorified in our midst as we consider your word together. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What an incredible scene has has been laid out for us uh, in such amazing and bright colors and textures uh, as John describes this vision of heaven. So let's come now to the text, and we're going to just jump straight in this morning and try and learn what Jesus, remember this is a vision of Jesus that was given to John for the benefit of the churches. So what does Jesus want us to learn uh, from this portion and and from this vision? And, And in the first place this morning, I want us to see a sealed scroll with no one to open it. In verses 1 to 5, the the chapter starts with John seeing the, the right hand of the Almighty God, and in his right hand is a scroll. It's a scroll that's written inside and on the back, and it is sealed with seven seals. Now, we're going to see next week when we come to chapter 6, Uh, and we look at the seals in more detail, that this scroll in the right hand of, of God Almighty represents God's eternal decrees for all of history. But in particular, it contains God's plan of redemption for all those who belong to him, and it contains his plan of judgment for all those who are his enemies. This idea of a scroll containing God's plan for all of history aligns so well with what we read in Psalm 139. Uh, It's a well-known psalm where David says, Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in, in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Then David says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance, And in your scroll were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. 
This idea of God's scroll containing all of human history, his decrees for all of history. And so here, John sees this, God's decrees for all of history bound up in the scroll from the creation of the world to every king and every nation which has ever risen and fallen to the very details of every moment of your and my life on this earth. And so we will see in detail next week that this scroll also contains not only God's eternal decrees regarding the salvation of the righteous, um, but his eternal decrees regarding the judgment of the wicked. We also see that this scroll was was written on the inside and on the outside. And and the commentators suggest that, that this refers to the fact that this scroll is full. It, it is complete. There's a, a modern thinking going on called open theism this, uh, these days, which basically says God doesn't really know what the future holds. No, says John, the scroll is full. There are not missing sections which God is not sure what is going to be written yet. No, everything is in the scroll. It is complete because God's decrees are eternal and they are unchanging. Now, if you are anything like me, as we consider this, this scene in heaven, I want to know what is written inside the scroll. But we have a problem because John tells us that this scroll is sealed with seven seals. Now, scrolls in those days were long. We are told sometimes up to 30 meters long. And especially scrolls that were recorded with the decrees of a king, they were sealed with the king's own seal. The the scroll was rolled up and the the loose flappy part, uh, molten wax was then dripped onto the loose flappy part and the king would take his, his signet ring and he would embed it into the wax. And so that scroll was sealed with the king's authority. And the understanding of this action was that only the intended recipient of the scroll or only someone expressly authorized by the king was allowed to break the seal and to read the contents of the scroll, particularly with the situation of a king, because the reading of the scroll therefore meant the execution of the king's decrees as that scroll was written out. So John tells us that that this scroll in the right hand of God Almighty has been sealed with seven seals. He's he's making the point that, that the contents of the scroll, at least up to this point, have been shut up by God, completely hidden from our eyes. And we see in verse two that there's this mighty angel who calls out in a loud voice and says, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. Now, it's a very weak illustration that's coming, but, but just think about our modern understanding of this, of, of a sealed letter. Picture yourself in a courtroom, a, a court of law, and a sealed letter is brought in addressed to the judge of the court. You cannot, as someone who's a, a spectator in the courtroom, just go and grab the letter and open it because you're curious about what's inside. If you did that, you would be declared in contempt of court and you would be carried away in handcuffs. And the reason for that is because you and I are not worthy to open that letter. We are not the judge. Only the designated person behind the bench has the authority 
or we could say is worthy to open the letter. So think about what is happening here in heaven. This mighty angel is asking this profound question. Who is worthy to open the scroll of God's eternal decrees? Who's worthy to break the seals? And then by implication, who is given the right to then execute all that God has purposed and decreed in this scroll? And we see in verse 3 that no one, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was found worthy. Look at verse 3 and 4. John links the idea of being worthy in verse 4 to ability in verse 3. He says no one was able to open the scroll. No one had the ability to open the scroll. Therefore, no one has the ability to execute what's in the scroll. And he weeps aloud because no one was found to be worthy to this great task. Now, why is John weeping? Why did it bother John so deeply that no one could be found? Well, let me take you back to my little courtroom scene. And I must be honest, I'm glad Cliff's not here. He'll be at the second service. I think it's more based on American TV than probably our South African courtroom scene. But imagine yourself as the accused. You're facing the death penalty. And your lawyers have argued bravely and convincingly for your innocence. The closing argument to the jury was brilliant, and it almost certainly guarantees your release. So when the jury returns from their deliberation, and they pass the sealed envelope to the judge to read out their decision, as you look around the courtroom, you realize the judge is nowhere to be found. He's gone. And there's no one else authorized to open that letter. There's no one else authorized by the, the laws of the land to break the seal and to proclaim your innocence. Without the decree of the judge, you remain locked up behind bars. If that was you, wouldn't you cry out in anguish like John? You see, John realized that unless someone could open the scroll, Unless someone could execute the plans of God to redeem his people and to bring judgment on the wicked, then he, along with all of us, remain in our sin. Unless God's purposes of eternal grace and salvation are executed, then Satan wins. Satan is the victor, and we are eternally condemned. And so John weeps loudly because no one was found able or worthy to open the scroll, or even to look inside. But then we have this amazing verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. What a relief. The judge is in the building. The, the elder announces that there is a lion of the tribe of Judah. There is a king from the line of David, and he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. I just love that phrase, he has conquered. It's past tense. It's, it's final. It speaks of complete accomplishment. 
it simultaneously speaks of both worth and ability. The, the lion, the king, he is worthy because he is able. He has conquered. He is the victor. He will open the scroll and execute all that God has decreed. And so in the second place, as John looks across the, the throne room of heaven to behold this lion, this, this king, we are told that John sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Verse 6 to 8, to John's amazement, and we are meant to be amazed with John, to see this lamb standing in the midst of the throne. And this is no ordinary lamb. This is a sacrificial lamb. It's a lamb that had been slain. The Greek literally says, I saw a lamb standing as slain. I think the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, uh, captures this best. It says, then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne. What John sees as he looks for this lion is a slaughtered lamb. But the lamb is not dead. It's alive. It's standing in the very center of heaven. And we are told that this lamb has seven horns. It's a, a symbol of, of military might and power. And, and the fact that there's seven speaks of this lamb's complete power and authority over all. And seven eyes, which represent, again, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And he takes the scroll from the right hand of the one who is seated on the throne. What an incredible vision into the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this has been drawn from all of the prophecies of the Old Testament and the, and the promises coming together in this vision in heaven. Do not weep, says the angel. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered and he is able to open the scroll. And when I looked, I saw a lamb slaughtered, uh, standing in the midst of the throne. Let me just remind you here quickly of how many of the Old Testament messianic promises and, and prophecies come together in this one description of Jesus. I can just imagine Jesus on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24 uh, when he was walking with those two disciples and we are told that he was explaining to them all the things in the scriptures concerning himself. Can you imagine just Jesus saying to them, Remember Genesis 3.15, the offspring of the serpent will strike the heel of the offspring of the woman. That was me, says Jesus, when they beat me and stripped me and nailed me to the cross. I was slain like a lamb. And remember when it says that the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That was me when I rose again. And remember in Genesis 49, verse 9 and 10, when it speaks of the offspring of Judah being like a lion, a lion from whom the scepter, the reigning throne symbol would never depart. That's me. I'm the lion king, says Jesus. And remember in 2 Samuel 7, when God promised that the offspring of David would reign on God's throne and build his kingdom forever. That's me, the root of David. And remember Isaiah 53, when Isaiah spoke of the suffering servant who would be led like a lamb to the slaughter to take away the sins of the world. That's me. 
And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So let's return to our scene in heaven. God is seated on the throne. The Spirit of God we've seen is there. The four living creatures representing all of creation are there. The 24 elders representing the the people of God are there. The multitudes of angels are there. But all of history is paused because the scroll of God's eternal decrees remains sealed. One person is missing. The eternally begotten Son of the Father is missing. Where is He? Without Him, God's purposes to redeem a people are stopped. And there is no one else worthy. There's no one else able. And so John weeps loudly. But suddenly, suddenly all of heaven is fixed on one person. His entrance is announced. Behold, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, He has conquered And we turn and we look with John and we see the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was slain, but he is risen from the dead and he ascends from earth into the presence of his Father and all the angels and John beholds Jesus, King Jesus, the Lion Jesus, the slaughtered Lamb Jesus, and he stands risen and ascended as the mighty conqueror. And this Jesus walks up to the throne and he takes the scroll from the right hand of God Almighty. And as he does so, all heaven breaks forth in uncontainable praise and worship. And so this leads us then to the final scene around the throne. And we see in the third place a universal choir singing a new song. Now we must not miss the transition into verse 9. Back in verse 2, the question was asked, who is worthy to open the scroll? Then in verse 4, John weeps aloud because no one is found to be worthy But as soon as Jesus appears in the midst of heaven, everything changes and the the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they just burst forth in song with the words in verse 9, you are worthy, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Now we must see here what it is that makes Jesus worthy. What is the reason for this new song of praise which is sung to Jesus? Please look at verse 9. He is worthy because for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them into a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign, the implication is, with Jesus on the earth. So the praise of the Lamb standing in the midst of the throne is because of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished through his death and his resurrection. Notice that he conquered through sacrifice. The Lamb wins by being slain. 
the, the Lion of Judah rules and reigns by becoming a man who was nailed to a cross. Who could have come up with this except God? And what exactly did his death accomplish? Jesus accomplished everything which the Old Testament promised. Just think again, if you go right back to Genesis 1, we see God creating Adam and Eve and placing Adam as his representative head on earth. What was his purpose? To nurture and cultivate and rule over all of God's creation so that Adam and by implication human beings would be God's ambassadors on earth. We would be his vice regents so that the glory of God would be seen across the earth. And by Genesis 3, Adam has failed miserably and he's been thrown out of the Garden of Eden and out of the presence of God. And so God later appoints Israel, the nation of Israel, to be his representatives on earth. He gives them another garden, the promised land of Canaan, and he instructs them to nurture it and, and to, to be a kingdom and to be priests to him to be his ambassadors on earth so that all the nations would see the glory of God. But the whole Old Testament is an account of Israel's miserable failure. And so ultimately God exiles them from their garden and he withdraws his presence from the temple. Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed. So we see the background then to John's weeping in heaven when he realizes that there is no one worthy to open the scroll. Not Adam, not Moses, not Abraham, not David, not Solomon, not Israel. No one was able or worthy to open the scroll. But where Adam failed and where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. The Lamb wins. By his death and resurrection, Jesus not only accomplished a redemption for people, uh, for God, from every person and tribe on the face of the globe, a people who can radiate the glory of God to the world around us, but he has made this people, us, his church, into a kingdom of priests. The angelic beings in heaven praise Jesus as worthy because he has fulfilled the exact promises that were given by God to Israel in Exodus 19. If you're taking notes, Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6, God speaks to Israel, and he says to Israel, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Notice the original promise to Israel was conditional. Conditional on Israel being obedient to God, on Israel being faithful to God's covenant. And the whole Old Testament is this long, depressing story of Israel's pervasive and continued failure to be what God called them to be. And so notice that the praise in heaven is not true. Finally, a group of people managed to get it right. Let's all praise in heaven because finally there's a group of people on earth who managed to figure out how to be obedient and faithful to God. No, the praise in heaven is for Jesus. It's for Jesus who obeyed God's voice 
Jesus, who kept God's covenant, he succeeded where every human being failed, where the nation of Israel failed. And the praise in heaven is because Jesus has accomplished everything for his church. Through his life of perfect obedience, he paid the ransom price for our freedom. He then died the death that we should have died. His resurrection makes us into his chosen living people. He conquered sin and death and Satan. And so all those who belong to Jesus will reign with him on the earth. As I want you to see that the praise in heaven for the lamb who is worthy is they're not limited to this inner circle. Now we see in verse 11 that John looks around and he sees a host of myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of angels shouting out with loud voices, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. But even that is not sufficient praise for this one who is worthy. And John tells us in verse 13 that every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and everything in all creation cries out to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Shane reminded us last week of the pluralistic world in which we live, where many religions claim their own way to God. And most religions these days, as they've had throughout history, have great leaders or great prophets who who claim to be appointed by God, claim to be mediators to God. But I want you to see that the clear teaching of the Bible in this vision of John is that Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain, He is God. Look back at chapter 4, verse 11 at the heavenly beings worshiping God who sits on the throne. What are the words they use? Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. And now just a few moments later, as Jesus stands in the midst of the throne, in verse 12, we read the same things, but addressed to Jesus. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then if you still have any doubts as to Jesus being God this morning, we see that all of creation ascribes the same worship to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This new song in heaven is the song of the Lamb. It's the salvation song of Jesus. He is God, and He is worthy of all our praise. So we need to conclude today, and I want to just draw a few points of of application which flow from this passage today. And the first is this. Grieve much for a world without Jesus. When you think of a world without Jesus, a world in which no one is worthy to open the scroll of God's eternal plan of salvation and judgment, are you overcome with weeping in your soul? Or are you simply indifferent? 
Now you might say, well, Clinton, that's not a fair question because we know that Jesus did come and we know that he is worthy and he saved me and, and he'll come to judge the wicked. Well, then my next question is, are you burdened for those around you who are not yet trusting in Jesus for salvation? If they do not turn to this Jesus for salvation, there is no other name given under heaven by which we can be saved. And they will perish eternally when Jesus returns on his white horse to judge the living and the dead. If all of heaven is praising and worshiping Jesus for what he accomplished through his death and resurrection, how can you and I be so indifferent and impassioned to proclaim this Jesus to those who are perishing. Something's wrong. So we need to grieve much for a world without Jesus. Secondly, I want us to look much to Jesus who reigns. Remember that this vision was given to those who were suffering. Suffering greatly, suffering persecution for the name of Christ, suffering injustice and oppression. They were suffering opposition, temptation, false teaching. There was a lack of perspective and hope. And this vision was given to them to encourage them to look to Jesus, to, to lift their eyes, to lift their hearts to the throne room of heaven and to see Jesus, to see the Lion of Judah. To see the lamb who was slain standing. They were encouraged to know that Jesus has conquered. And this scene in chapter 5 is actually the central theme of the whole book of Revelation. And in fact, it's the central theme for the entire Bible. This vision, the scene in heaven, puts all of history into its right perspective. A true Christian reads their Bible all of it Christocentrically, with Christ at the center. A true Christian understands history teachers here at, school, uh, at, at in the church, if there are any school history teachers, a true Christian understands all of world history Christocentrically. A true Christian sees the present, circumstances that we face, and the future Christocentrically. And a true Christian anticipates the end of all things and the beginning of eternity Christocentrically. So my question to you is, is Jesus Christ the center of your life? John tells us that Jesus is the center of the universe. If he is not the center of your life, then you are being called afresh today to look to Jesus and to live then thirdly, third application that comes wonderfully out of this passage is pray much for Jesus hears our prayers. And you might say, well, where's that? Well, there's a wonderful encouragement in some details that I skipped over for the sake of time this morning. But look at verse 8. That when Jesus appears in the throne room of heaven, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fall down before the throne and they are each holding in their hand harps, a, a sign of song and praise and worship. And golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We're going to see again in, in future weeks, so we, we're not going to spend time on that today, uh, this bowl of incense, except to say how encouraging it is to know that our prayers are heard by God. The prayers of God's people, especially as we suffer much on this earth, are presented 
in the very presence of God, and they are accepted by God because of Jesus. Notice the bowls weren't presented earlier. It's only when Jesus arrived on the scene that our prayers become acceptable to God because of what Jesus has done. And so because he has conquered, we can pray about everything, knowing with confidence that he hears us. And you can come at five o'clock tonight and start that process uh, as we pray corporately. Fourthly, uh, be comforted much for the spirit is with us. Another detail that I skipped over in verse 6, where we see the lamb not only has seven horns symbolizing universal power and reign, but he has seven eyes, which we are told symbolize the, the Holy Spirit of God. And here's the detail, which has been sent out into all the earth. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, verse 7, it is to your advantage that I return to the Father, because then... I will send the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit to you. And so what a blessing and encouragement it is today to know that, yes, Jesus is reigning and he's ruling over all things for the sake of the church. And he will one day come to judge the world and to bring us to himself. But in the meantime, he has not left us as orphans. He has sent his spirit to help us, to comfort us, to guide us and to protect us. And then finally, the last application from this passage is praise much, for Jesus is worthy. I want you to see that we are meant to be called now to be part of this eternal praise scene in heaven. Do you see that all the praise in heaven is for what Jesus has accomplished? It's all by observation only. The, the elders... And the four living creatures, these angelic beings, they are worshiping Jesus for what he has accomplished, not for them, but for us. Look at verse 9. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, if all of these angelic beings are praising God like this for something of which they are only third-party observers, how much more should our lives not be lived in worship and praise and adoration of Jesus when we are the first-hand recipients of this grace? Let me remind you, and I'll close with this, of what Peter says in 1 Peter 2 which calls us right now, every day, to live our lives of praise and glory and, and worship to Jesus for what he has done. Notice the parallels between what the heavenly creatures are praising Jesus for and what Peter says we should be praising Jesus for. 1 Peter 2 verse 9, But you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, God's special possession, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy.
what a God, what a Savior, and what a privilege to then worship him with all of our lives here on earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we just want to thank you today for this glimpse that you have given to us into the very throne room of heaven. Thank you that everything we need on this earth to have a Christ-centered perspective of the world, to have a Christ-centered perspective of history, and to have a Christ-centered perspective of our lives as individuals and as a church is given to us here in this vision as the Lamb standing. He has conquered. So we ask that you would forgive us for when we live our lives as if this reality were not true. Forgive us for so easily making ourselves and the the earthly things of this world to be the center of our lives. Relationships, people, cars, jobs, things, Forgive us, we pray. Lord, help us afresh today to have this glorious perspective of Christ reigning and standing as the Lion King, the one who has conquered. And may that profoundly fill us with praise and worship, not just on Sundays, not just when we listen to worship music in the car, but that all of our lives, every relationship, every action, everything we do would be saturated with the praise and the worship and the centrality of Jesus Christ in our lives. You are worthy. Help us to radiate that worth in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.